Welcome, everybody, to the Fins and Feathers podcast, presented to you by Winter Productions and your host, Nathan Winterstein. What is going on, everybody? We are back for another episode, episode 41, I do believe. And uh, we're going to call up Tyler's brother, Justin, just here in a second and um, talk a little bit of hunting with him. Um, he just got back from out west and uh, yeah, it was pretty eventful. It's going to be a fun story to hear him talk about it. I've heard it from uh, from his brother. We'll see if he talks it as bad as brother does um they kind of had a bad experience but what we're going to talk about uh talk a little bit about other stuff he's a part of with um west virginia and deer management so let's um let's give him a call and we'll jump on in this what's going on man not much oh that worked perfectly i had the wrong meter moved but we'll see how long this works till the internet crashes because you know, BFE. Yeah. 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 Um, whenever I move out of Morgantown here in the next couple of years and move out to the property we bought, that's one thing I'm not looking forward to is the internet situation. Yeah. But, uh, is it, is it the property, the property up there, correct? Um, is it the property you brought up, you bought up there, correct? Around Morgantown? Yeah. It's, uh, out in Brewston Mills, which is about uh, 10, 15 minutes uh, east of Morgantown. Um, you're over near like uh, Deep Creek, Maryland, uh, not far from Deep Creek, about halfway between Deep Creek and, and Morgantown. Okay. Actually, Katie's um, uh, aunt and uncle live right in there. They live near the prison in a subdivision. I don't know if that helps you Yeah, know where that is or not. Yeah, Hazleton. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Hazleton. Yeah. Yeah, they live in that area. Um Yeah, so we're going to talk about a little, we're going we're going to get into your elk hunt cuz I cuz I want to like I've watched a ton of elk hunting YouTube videos now and I know you just got back and I know yeah. I know that was eventful, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys probably handled that a little better than me and your brother would have handled that. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it took some convincing. Uh, one of the guys I went with, I was like, "Dude, just get back in the truck, we'll leave." And uh, part ways with this guy, I never talked to him again. <laughs> yeah, but um, so let's start off with you. You have been doing. I don't know if you're still a part, but you were a part of a deer management association. Are you still a part of that? Yeah. So. Uh, Last few years, I was involved with the Mountaineer chapter of uh, QDMA, Quality Deer Management Association, um, which, you know, was a, a large national um, association and nonprofit. And they merged with, I think it was called the National Deer Alliance um, in like 2020, 2021. Um, and when that merge happened, um, the guys that 
I was uh, running the Mountaineer chapter with, and then the other two um, QDMA chapters we had here in West Virginia, we kind of took that opportunity to um, leave a national organization and make our own at the state level and, uh, you know, officially form a, uh, a business and a corporation and um, called the uh, West Virginia Deer Association. We are, uh, we're, we've filed all necessary paperwork and waiting on our official uh, nonprofit designation to come back from the uh, IRS. So I am our uh, state secretary. And then uh, we have a president, treasurer, and then a district um, director for each of the uh, six DNR districts. Uh, so the, you know, the DNR has the state divided up into six different districts. That's kind of how they manage their employees and gain management units and whatnot, um, biology, biologists, those types of people. So we have a director for each one of those districts. So um, we officially formed uh, about 10 months ago. I was in December of 21, and uh, I've been up and rolling uh, for the better part of this year. So it's been quite a process with all the paperwork and licenses you have to have, but it's been it's been fun and been interesting. Yeah, it's it, that is stuff that's very interesting because I'm actually I'm I, I'm glad you broke away from a national group and went with a state level because that's that's my big argument right now on the waterfowl side is we're just letting like basically federal dates decide our waterfowl season instead of like as West Virginia waterfowl are stepping up and saying, working with the DNR to change some of our dates, you've waterfowl hunted a little bit, but as as you know, it's a, it's a winter game. So as a migration happens and we have two really bad seasons and then we have like, obviously the late season that maxes out yeah. what it can do. Yeah. But, but like, I mean, we have a very bad season and I'm trying to, get the necessary wheels rolling right now to make that happen. But I'm excited to see you guys starting and working at the state level. Cause that's where it starts. I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize that there's a lot of associations out there, but we're probably like a small piece of their pie. They really care about when it comes at the state level for us. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yep. our, like we're in the Eastern waterfowl. Um, oh gosh. Atlantic flyway. There we go. I about messed that up. And we're, we're a nobody in that flyway. We're kind of the farthest mm-hmm. end, so we're like no one cares about us. We're ignored, and that and that's yeah. where that's where I'm glad you guys are starting at the state level because people from at a national level, there's people all the Midwest states could really care less what y'all's opinion is. <laughs> yep, yeah, and it's the same way with you know deer hunting. Uh, we're not a you know destination state for deer hunting. But yeah, we're the only state that has. Um, you know, whole counties designated as archery only or, or, you know, bow hunting only, uh, with our, with our counties down there, uh, you know, on the Virginia and Kentucky border. Um, that kind of makes us unique, but, you know, otherwise people come here to, to deer hunt just to, you know, shoot anything that moves. And, um, you know, that's kind of how we felt that the, you know, the national organizations, you know, we were, we were, you know, not even a blip on their radar. So we were like, you know, we do all this work. We put in all this time, all this effort. Um, why don't we, you know, just be our own own boss and, and do our own thing? Um, so that's where we landed. Yeah, and, and not to, like, change away from deer, but to jump real quick to elk, and then we'll come back. 
with with the elk startup in West Virginia and stuff, I'm kind of glad you guys are looking at the state level because Kentucky has very done very well. I think the yeah. other day I seen a massive. I forget it was like a 300 and some inch bull that was killed in Kentucky. Yeah, I mean, yep. Oh yeah, you probably seen it also. It was on uh, social media and stuff. Man, that that thing was a stud. And that was killed. Yeah, out here. I mean, a lot of as we're gonna get into a lot of. If you go out west, like that's what you want to shoot, but there's a less likely chance of you shooting that. You're probably gonna shoot in the one fifties, yep. the probably like the low two hundreds in reality. Just you're you're really uh, you know looking for a brown pine bull. You know, yeah. uh, it's got eye guards that are three, four inches long. I think it's three inches or four inches, at least in Montana, that calls, you know, makes it a legal bull that you can harvest. Um, and a lot of people, <laughs> they get one of those in out there, they take it. So. But before we get over to the elk hunting, um, you, you guys, what is y'all's, like, just quick look, because I know you guys are still waiting. You, I mean, you're still, you're a baby bird. You barely have even started. You're still in the nest of this thing. But what are some of y'all's goals as y'all, like, look out, short-term and long-term? Yeah. So uh, our short-term is to build a membership network um, and, and just get our name out there. We've been going to you know the outdoor shows and, and just getting our name out there, letting people know, hey, we have this state-level organization now. Um, the only really state-level organization we had was uh, the West Virginia Bow Hunters Association, that's pretty narrow. It's, you know, bow hunters only. Um, sometimes crossbow hunters aren't even welcome in that, those crowds. So, you know, we are trying to get our name out there as representing all hunters, uh, you know, no matter what your choice of weapon is. Um, so we're trying to build a membership network right now and, um, do a lot of fundraising. That way we have funds to hold these events. Um, our, our goal this year was, uh, to hold a, uh, white health summit. Uh, which we did. We partnered with, uh, you know, the DNR, West Virginia DNR, had their um, deer, um, you know, their lead biologist for the deer management program. He came, uh, gave us a very lengthy presentation uh, on, you know, kind of the state of the deer herd in West Virginia and, and what all goes into the DNR managing our deer. And then we also got um, two presentations from the, uh, you know, the, the disease biologist that the DNR has. And one of those was about, you know, the, the, the most talked about probably in West Virginia, um, at least all over the state, you know, EHD or HD. Um, and then we also got a presentation about CWD. Uh, and we videoed those presentations, recorded them. And uh, hopefully here shortly, you'll be able to find them on our website if you're a member. Uh, you'll have access to that. You can go in and watch them. Um, and then uh, another goal for us in the short term, uh, believe it or not, in the state of West Virginia, we do not have very many, you know, ADA accessible or handicap accessible hunting areas on our wildlife management areas. So uh, we kicked off our first one on the, the Summersville Wildlife Management Area but we're putting in uh, ADA accessible hunting blinds. Um, they, we go in and, and make a clear out a path that, you know, you can easily get a, a wheelchair or a motorized chair through, uh, gravel it, line it with, uh, you know, landscape timbers to hold the gravel. And then we build um, these blinds for them to get in and, you know, get in and out of the rain if they wanted to, or um, somewhere to, you know, give them some cover. And uh, we try to put those near 
you know, wherever the uh, uh, wildlife management area uh, manager uh, has done some type of improvement, whether that's timber stand improvement, um, early successional habitat. Uh, we just put that one on a food plot. Um, so that's, that's short-term goals is get one in each district uh, and, 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 you know, give those folks somewhere to go um, if they so desire. So that, that's some short-term goals. Long-term goals, um, it's kind of, let's see where this takes us. Uh, we, you know, we, we definitely want to have some impact and some influence uh, with our, our DNR as far as rulemaking, bag limits, uh, but also with our, um, you know, state uh, legislators, um, the, the legislative bodies. Um, you know, they do have, while we have a natural resource commission, um, which is, you know, appointed by the gov- governors, uh, I think it's seven people, um, you know, we, we, you know, meet with them and talk with them regularly, but we also want to work with our legislators. Um, that way, when the DNR asks for something from them, you know, that they've got to approve, you know, they can come to us and say, you know, what's the, the deer hunter's thoughts on that? Um, and, and we can be there to be that voice to say, yeah, we, we, we love that or, or we're not, we're not too stoked about it. So, um, and then we're going to continue, you know, offering some benefits to our members, uh, field days. Um, we're working on scheduling one of those where we can go out to like a, a logging job where somebody is purposefully removing timber for the benefit of, of deer and other wildlife. Um, how you do that, how you plan it out, um, those types of things. Um, we're just a whole gamut of, of things. Um, maybe some opportunities to open up some access points on some public land. Um, you know, we have the Mon National Forest here that is managed game-wise by the West Virginia DNR. There's some wildlife management areas on it. Um, so we know that there's some pockets of public land out there that are hard to get to, surrounded by private. So, yeah, we're going to try to go in and identify those and open them up. So um, that's, that's just a brief overview of some of our goals but uh we've got a long ways to go and and we're just uh chugging along on it yeah you you're really sounding like to me you like for for all the waterfowl people that follow this this is kind of like the whole ordeal that's going on in arkansas where they're opening up and trying to better you're, you're really there for the everyday hunter that doesn't realize that you know he's missing out on these opportunities because he's limited because no one's thought of them or taken care of them, like the handicap stuff. I mean, I don't know why that's not already there. As much as we care about mm-hmm. our fellow sportsmen, that's just something like I'm thinking about on the waterfowl side. That is, we don't offer that anywhere, and that should be easily offered in the two WMAs around me. Uh, that could easily be built in and developed, and wouldn't take much to do. That those things right there and then like you said going in and cleaning out the timbers and stuff because we have a lot of wmas i know some of them that i've been in that don't really get the care they probably should as far as like the underbrush and kind of open them up so that you actually can have that that undergrowth in there at times um yeah yeah and some of that comes down uh you know to budget for those wildlife managers and then sometimes it comes down to you know quality of wildlife manager um you know the guy in summersville i can't remember his name off the top of my head but um you could tell you know he was really uh busting his butt um you know we saw two uh timber stand improvement jobs he had done a food plot he had put in um 
you know, he invited us to come on and put that uh, handicap accessible blind in. He said, I think I've got a great spot if, if you guys could uh, provide labor and, and some materials. And we're like, yeah, we, we've got you. Um, so, he, you know, he was really busting us up. So that's what that's what we're looking for, those people out there. And I think that's what's going to make a difference on our wildlife management areas. Yeah, and that and that's just a start too. I mean, I mean, you're ten months into this. The fact you've already accomplished some stuff ten months in is pretty impressive. I mean, usually ten months in, you're still trying to find find your footing. Like you're like, I don't know what's. You're still trying to figure out the players and understand the game of who you got to associate with and get get the doors open and get it moving. And you guys seem to have already have that going, where you already was a part of something that, you know, moved to the national level that I'm not going to say you guys didn't do stuff then, but you definitely was going to lose your power to do stuff here after that. And, yeah. um, and, and, and like you said, there's, there's a lot of things like I, I agree with, I think there's some WMAs out there, which you, you know, the McClinic and the green bottom areas um, mm-hmm. that are down this way. And we have discussed, I don't know if we've discussed on here, not discussed on here in previous podcasts I have, but I think those two areas, like I know a lot of guys that bow hunt them, and I, I don't know. We've discussed what you can, if you can gun hunt in there or not, but you would really benefit from opening up some of the, they put some food plots in there, but there's a lot of tim, a lot of the timber in there just turns in the brush. And not that you yeah. completely take it all out because the rabbit hunters do love those places and it's great places to go train. And I'm glad they have a place because that's another thing we kind of, we kind of have down this area is a pretty good beagle club area. Um, I don't know really, I know guys are part of that association. I don't really know a lot of them in there, but it's opportunities for them to get out there. So we have, you got to remember that as you move forward, you can't take, I guess that, that was like more me saying like opening that up, but you also, to me, you'd have to remember that you've got to watch kind of who all's using that area, I guess to say. Yeah. 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 A lot of times, you know, timber stand improvement projects, you go in there and move out, you know, those big trees that are, are, drowning out you know all the good undergrowth that would come up you cut that out and it's good for it's good for the grouse it's good for the rabbits it's good for the deer um it seems like you know about anything you do to improve it is good for all parties um so yeah it's, it's one of those things that uh you know we didn't feel like at a state level at least gear wise there wasn't uh there wasn't anybody pushing uh for some improvements there uh, or even being supportive uh, of improvements, and, and that's what we've we've been able to do. Partner with the DNR and uh, meet some of those guys, and, and Director McMillian uh, with the DNR. He's been great. Uh, he he comes to our meetings and, and gives us input and things. So it's been it's been good. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people understand. Like to make make the changes, you've got to get the input from everyone. Um, yeah. And that and that's where even I'm not a super big deer hunter, but like I need to be a part of the association because there's gonna it'll have impacts on what I do in some of them WMAs and stuff. But it's not gonna be negative impact. It's just gonna be stuff that you know makes makes sense for everyone to be able to open it up and give everyone the ability to do different things. Um, because there's a lot of I'm trying to think of the one WMA. It's in, I think it's in Jackson County. I might have the wrong county. Oh, shoot. Is it Frozen Camp? Is that a WMA? I might have this completely wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's it's Frozen Camp or Frozen Creek, something like that. It is in Jackson County, yeah. Yeah, like, last time I visited it, it was very, like, 
very, very, very brushy. Like there was not even like that's one that was like I thought, man, if you go in and like give the ability for trees to grow, it open it more up for deer hunters. It was more or less just a rabbit hunting paradise. Um, yeah, and a lot of that uh, that frozen camp or frozen creek, I can't remember what it is in Jackson County. That's like a uh, a brand new um, WMA. They they recently purchased that from uh, a pretty large. Um, timber company or, or timber holding land holding company. Um, you know, it was originally all private land and they were able, able to purchase that. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things that they probably haven't even thought about um, getting to it yet. So yeah. And, and being divided up the way that we are with the Western Indian Deer Association having the six districts and those six directors, you know, those each, those directors, you know, can target, and partner with the DNR in each one of their districts so that they can get those things done. Um, and, and, you know, being a state level organization and on a national level organization, we get those freedoms, um, to, to direct funds equally, um, across our districts. And, and also, you know, if you get too big, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing or, you know, nobody knows if, anybody's actually doing anything. Um, so we being small state, state run, uh, we, we can put a lot of attention to those individual projects. Yeah. And I, I think, um, I think there's going to be a lot of, and a lot of great stuff come from this. And something you brought up was the, uh, the private land, the public land that's locked by private land. That's a, that's a major topic right now, especially with the, the corner crossing case out in, um, I don't even know what state it was in now. That um, Wyoming, I believe. It might have been Wyoming, where basically the someone crossed over the air of someone else's property, and now they're. I think they're. They've the criminal charges have been like they've been guilty on something like, and I I don't understand they're, they're, like their their criminal charges were um, trespass. You know, they were charged with trespassing and I believe hunting without permission, and they were found innocent on those. Um, but where those guys are still um, kind of in the peril, legal peril, um, the rancher, uh, or I shouldn't say rancher, um, I believe this gentleman lives down in like North Carolina and owns a ranch out there. Um, he is going after them in civil court now, uh, and suing them for, I believe it was, Seven million dollars, because he basically admitted in his court documents that if people can cross corners, then what his you know his fifteen thousand acre ranch landlocks. Um, you know, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but another fifteen thousand acres of public, he no longer gets you know free and yeah. unlimited you yeah. know use of that public land. So he's like, all that damaged me seven million dollars. Yeah, because you know now I don't get that unlimited access to it. You know, all to myself. Yeah, it so. was, yeah that and if that passes, that is going to be ridiculous. And I think the way yeah. it sounded like it should. But to think that okay, if you're going to argue that, then every time someone has flown an airplane over top of your property, they've trespassed. So you go talk to the. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean that's basically what you're yeah. saying. Like whether they're it's one foot above the ground or. 10,000 yeah. feet, it's still above your ground. It never touched it. Um, yep, yeah. It, that that one was one of those things, you know, I've listened to those guys talk. They've been on numerous podcasts. 
and, uh, you know, them tell their story. Um, you know, it's just one of those things they never imagined it could go this far. And they, you know, they were just trying to get back into some public land to hunt. They were in there harvesting some animals, had some great hunts. And, and then, uh, I think actually they say one year, um, it happened and, and, uh, a, a conservation officer or game warden came and met them at their campsite, talked them through it. And maybe it was a sheriff deputy as well. They were like, Oh, you guys are all good. As far as we're concerned, the next year it happens. Uh, the, you know, different, different wardens, different deputies show up, tell them that they're all good and in the clear and then show back up again and say, listen, I've been instructed to come out and, you know, issue you guys tickets for trespassing and whatnot. Um, so it's, it's very obvious that there was some influence from higher up, uh, whether it's with that prosecuting attorney or whomever in that county. Um, well, you know, somebody planted a bug in their ear to go after those guys. And, uh, well, it, it, if we backfires. Yeah. If we've learned anything from the past, the past week and a half now, and I, the, this podcast will come out after my, my podcast where I kind of briefly talked about the walleye incident, the walleye GD incident. When is, I mean, cause here we'll talk real quick on this. And when, when you think about it, it's all about money and, yeah. and, and at the end of the day, they, those guys up there and these people out there, they care more about the dollar they're going for the the dollar. It's got to be over the money because let's be honest. Those walleye guys had won four hundred and some thousand dollars. At what point yeah. did you just stop? And a boat. I think it was a boat. They well, also won a boat this year. Well, that I was mean, included. No, no, no. There's they won a boat last year. They won a boat this year okay. and was DQ'd for failing a lie detector test. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's yep. when the red flags are coming up. And I guess they had been refusing to donate their fish to. Um, the hungry, like helping the hungry and stuff. And like, yeah. that's where all the red flags came from. But, but still they, I mean, at $400,000 and let's be honest, we don't know the facts of what's going on out there, but I guarantee someone has donated money to the right person. Cause if this guy's yeah. got 15,000 acres out there and he's got enough money to go after these guys, then, yep. he's, then he's got enough money. He's donated. Like this is Yellowstone going down right now. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna find out if Rip's gonna come out, take someone to the train station. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. The, the, uh, the you're right. It's what it is. It's about the money. The guy that owns that property out in Wyoming, you know, he runs an outfitting business on it, um, and and he's like, well, I can't, you know, if I don't get full outfitting, you know, abilities on all that private land or public land back in there. Yeah, it's going to cost me seven million dollars. He just comes right out and says it in the civil lawsuit he filed. So, um, yeah, and then the whole walleye dudes cheating. Uh, there's a lot to unpack with all that, and I think there's a lot going to you know go down over the next few weeks. I would say with that. Um, yeah, but you know, you're right. It comes down to the money. Um, those guys wanted money, and some of it's pride. You know what I mean? They want to beat their chest and, and look good in front of everybody and say, you know, we're, we're the best walleye fishermen in Ohio, but, um, it's kind of, it's backfired on them for sure. They're going to, I have a feeling they're going to spend some time in jail, um, from what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. That there, but here's the, 
the real the real thing is I don't know the laws on Ohio and where all they cheated at and stuff. This is one of those things where everyone's gonna have to go civilly against them if all the anglers they fished against start doing civil cases against them. And um, it really, to me, it really comes down to you can't prove that they ever cheated before. Obviously, they have. It's pretty well known that they cheated before. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, I don't know how you don't know they didn't cheat before with with all the information that was given. I mean, they were they were caught cheating before. They failed a lie detector test over something. Like I said, you can fail a lie detector test over the stupidest stuff in the world in, in a contest like that. You can misspeak and fail one. But obviously, it was probably something a little... A little more in depth, but but before we get off track on that, the the big thing is the the um the private lands that block those public lands. That the fact that you guys are actually going to be working to open those up. Um, we've we've talked about a some around here, and um, there's some local that you know the only way into them is actually boat, which is something I never thought of using, but it's a very popular way to get into public land actually. Did I lose you, Justin? Are you still there? Yeah, you're cutting out. You're cutting in and out on me pretty bad. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, okay. Yep, yep. So as long as I hear you, that's good. I mean, I know you can't hear me. That's, yeah, that sucks. But I, I've got, I've got you now, and I, I got, you know, got bits and pieces of it. you right. That whole wall thing is, yeah, so is crazy. Yeah, and like I don't even understand the whole fish fillets. Why were they putting? wall off the lathes in there like obviously we know why they're putting the lead sinkers in there to make them heavier but um the fillets it's like why would you stuffing fish fillets down there why would you just stuff more sinkers um uh, yeah know. i don't know um but but getting getting back on topic the the public lands that we have in west virginia there's a, there's a lot that are accessible by boat that you can't that I think you can't access by land. I know of a couple mm-hmm. spots. And, yeah, and you guys working maybe towards getting like a little right away, whether it be a fuller path or a walking path that you have to walk down to get into the yep. areas yep. through these private lands and stuff. That I mean, that's amazing. That's a really that's a really great great thing that some people don't think about because we kind of do have this younger generation. I'd say coming up that are hunters. They're do this saddle hunting and everything they do is quite crazy. I don't know if I could do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cannot. Uh, uh, no way I could sit up in there. I, I, you know, I've had tree stands that, you know, you kind of have straps underneath you that hold up a seat. And a few hours in, you know, those things are digging into me, and I'm I'm about done with them. I couldn't imagine purposefully hanging off the tree in one of those, you know. But people do it. And people love it. Well, I mean, and I don't know if you watched the the hunting public any. They are, they, like, if you go on their YouTube and start just going back and watching some of their stuff, I mean, a lot of times, like, they don't do anything that fancy or that special. They just use common sense and just go hunt. And they can, yeah. and you can kill big deer. Um, I would like to know where they're at in North Dakota when they're out there hunting, and your brother hasn't seen those videos yet because I was like, we need to be finding out. There's a billion ducks on camera. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's public or private, but I'd like to know. Um, but yeah, like those, those things, like they, they go into a public area and they just set up and they just read deer sign. And, and with that, um, hopefully you guys will be able to work out a deal with like a company like Onyx for a discount for your, for your members because Onyx is, 
very valuable tool. I use it all the time. I don't know how often you use it. Oh, a ton. A ton. Um, um, here, out west, uh, for work. Uh, you know, I use it for work. It, you know, it, it's super nice, super nice. Yeah, it, it's very, I'll tell you this much. It's a lot more up-to-date than Google is. I don't know how. But like yeah. Google, Google Earth is never up to date as good as like I'll find stuff on there and then I'll go look on Google Earth and it's not there. I'm like, huh, that explains. I wonder how long that's been there because, you know, we're five years later and I'm finding stuff that I wonder how long that pond's been there. Um, But yeah, that I mean, that that's a great overview summary. And now um, let's let's jump in. You you've how many times have you went out west hunting? I have hunted in Montana uh, for elk uh, two years now. I hunted in first trip was out for uh, a rifle hunt in 2020. And then my second trip was this past year, um, opening week of archery season in Montana. So I've been, I've been twice now. And I, I think I've had a uh, very wide ranging of experiences as far as outfitters go. So, so your first trip, let's talk about that because if I remember right, you had a, and this is going to sound completely off topic, and if I can steal this picture from you, I'll use it when I like post about this episode, that freaking huge yellow horse you had to ride in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tatonka. Um, after the, you know, the wrestler, uh, you know, WWE or WWF wrestler Tatonka, he, he was very tall. He was like, uh, you know, crossbred with, with a stock horse, a workhorse, and, um, you know, I'm a bigger guy. And, uh, you know, I let them know going out there, they were like, hey, anybody over 250, you know, can't ride a horse. And I'm like, well, I'm right there at that mark. And they're like, oh, we've got you covered. Don't worry about it. And I show up, and there's a horse there and standing beside of him. I can't even, you know, see over top of the saddle. So he was he was great, though. Um, it, was, it was like riding a, you know, four-wheeler and ATV or something. So. I mean, we also need to point out is you're not like you're not going to ride horses for fun often or ever. Not much. I mean, <laughs> yeah, not much. I've been on a horse, you know, probably um, I would say a dozen times, uh, and half of those were in Montana. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What what area of Montana do y'all go hunt? I think you guys. So in 2020, I hunted in. Um, I think it was in the three, in the third section in the 300 range on the unit. Um, it was kind of over near Dillon and Twin Bridges. Um, you hear him talk about Dillon on uh, Yellowstone. It's where they go to Murdoch with uh, Beth and that boy go there. Um, I've, I've been there. We went about 30 minutes from there hunting. A uh, mix of, of public and private, uh, but I went with an outfitter that time. It was, it was a good time uh, for sure. Okay, so, and then, okay, so, I, I've i been talking with a guide from um, the northeast, the northwest, not northeast, ooh, the northwest part of Montana, which is a rough, rough terrain. Um, yeah, yep, yep, they're near Glacier. Yep, yeah. Yep, they're pretty much, yep, they're right up there on the border and stuff. So, the the first time out there, I, I don't, you didn't get it, did you get a shot at an elk? I think you killed a whitetail, first, didn't you? Yeah, the first time I did not get an opportunity to shoot an elk. There was um, me and five other guys in my you know hunting party, my group that went out, and uh, 
at, let's see, all but two of us got shot at elk. And uh, so four guys got to shoot and three guys, three of the four, um, you know, killed elk. Um, so we felt like that was a pretty good trip. Um, and then uh, I killed a white tail. And then uh, one of the other guys I went with, uh, he killed, or we believe he killed uh, a mule deer. Um, he and I went out one time, one evening without a guide or an outfitter, um, checking out some stuff. And uh, he's been out there numerous times with the same outfitter. He knows the area really well. So he and I went out and uh, we got on these mule deer and he snuck up and shot. We never found an ounce of blood. It, it was it was snow on, so it wasn't like it was going to be hard to find blood. Never found an ounce of blood. Followed his tracks for a little bit, didn't find anything. And the outfitter called probably a week after we got back. And he was like, did you, you guys are up there in this area and, and shot at a mule deer. And I was, you know, we were like, yeah, yeah. He, he shot at one. He didn't hit it. And he was like, we found one right up there. Um, just back in some thick timber, you know, probably a hundred yards from where you guys are at. And, you know, he's, he's been, you know, scoured over, but, um, he sounds just like what you guys described at camp. And he sent us some pictures and we we're like, yeah, that's him. Um, so we, we were guessing maybe, uh, you know, just a gut shot or something that's not going to bleed um, is what ended up actually happening. So um, he got that mule deer. So we all but one of us came home with an animal. Yes, I mean that's pretty good. That's I yeah, mean, we were all happy with it. Yeah. So um, let twenty 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 out there was was tough with with COVID, and you know there's no football going on out there. Um, you know, no high school football. I'm not for sure that they didn't cancel college football kind of at a smaller level or or, or maybe crowds out there. So there was tons of hunters, tons of hunters, more than any of those folks out there had ever seen before. They were everywhere. So the elk herds are just, you know, getting bounced around and, you know, scattered constantly and getting ran and dogged to death. So, you know, we were pretty happy to come home with what we came home with. Yeah. Ever since COVID has hit the, um, the amount of hunters have increased, and I think oh, we're start, yeah. I think we're starting to see that downhill slide now. I think it, I think we're yeah, starting to see the yeah. runoff and stuff. But so you guys this year went out and you you guys were going to try archery, which is if I go out, that's what I want to do. I'm actually picking out. I've actually picked out a bow I want. I'm going to buy it in the spring, start shooting it up. I'm not I'm not looking to be running out there like next year or anything. But I do want to go out there for. I think if I go out there, I want to go do an archery tag. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's one of those things that was kind of a bucket list thing still on my bucket list. Uh, me, um, my little brother, and uh, two of our friends, we went out with an outfitter. We did get an outfitter and, uh, this outfitter has, uh, you know, exclusive outfitting rights on, uh, the Anaconda Pentler, um, wilderness area. So, you know, full on wilderness, um, very little trails, you know, he's only allowed, um, you know, horses, uh, back in there. That's all he's allowed. No motorized vehicles. And, uh, we, we slept in, uh, you know, canvas tents, wall tents, and we were, we were pretty far in there. So yeah, I think we were in unit 271, uh, on this hunt. So, um, it was, it was interesting. Um, <laughs> we get there and he, he had kind of, he again, using Onyx, sent us a couple, you know, Onyx spots. I was like, Hey, this is kind of, 
the area you guys are going to be hunting and pointed out some drainages and stuff. And, uh, we, we didn't know how we were going to get back in there. Um, we've seen some trailheads and stuff and he shows us the trailhead we're going to get to when we get there. And it is a six mile hike, you know, 2000 plus feet of elevation gain from the parking area up and over the continental divide. Oh, it was, it was a hike in there, but, uh, we all made it and, and uh, you know, stopping and, and at springs, drinking spring water, clean water out of the mountainside and stuff. But, yeah, we made it to camp, and I think we were on a five-day hunt is what we were on this time. But, yeah, archery is a blast for sure. Yeah, and it's something that, like, I th- I'd say you learned a lot um, probably this time. Yeah. I don't know how much research you did going in, and it's something that, like, you going out there and me hearing the story from your brother and your fun adventure and all the life lessons you learned, uh, from that yeah. trip, uh, it was kind of like, I kind of got, cause I've always wanted to do it. And you know, they call it a lot of people compare it to Turkey hunt and they say until you do it and it's not Turkey hunt. <laughs> they're like, yeah. they're like, yeah, you yeah. can compare it to Turkey hunt, but it's not the, I mean, the adrenaline rush is so much higher and stuff and you can actually, yeah understanding and something a podcast i've started listening to with um waypoint outfitters and uh josh um merced i think i just said his name right um he's actually a friend of mine i completely forgot that he was out there doing this and apparently he was doing it the whole time i knew him i just didn't realize that he was leaving every fall and i would miss him for radio and i'm like oh, i wonder where this guy's at i'd see him again in the spring and i didn't realize he was just leaving and going gotten um yeah but he now owns his own business and stuff and he's got a podcast and I've learned a lot from listening to his podcast about like, you know, they, they kind of put you in a place and like, if you don't understand going in, like you've kind of got to make decisions on your own. Like it's not as like, they're not going to be like right there with you and be like, Hey, like don't move. They give you a little freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's they a little, give you a little freedom. Yeah. Well, you've got to, you've got to adjust and, and it, yeah. and here's the thing also it plays in the way you're hunting at. Like, are you hunting, in the thick timber are you hunting are you hunting like more open woods are you hunting you know i i think it goes to like the more bugling there's going on the easier it is because the more the more knowledge and stuff you have but something that i think josh has talked about is a little bit on his podcast is the way like i i wouldn't say turkeys have changed that away here but but i'm now wondering is the fact that I thought when an elk bugled, he bugled. Like, he pretty much had loud and then kind of loud. Um, I did not realize that they could kind of get, like, real soft when they bugle and kind of yeah. like, yep. keep, it, keep it within the herd. And yeah. he started talking about that, and I was like, yep. well, crap, man. That would make it even harder, the fact that you've got to get within, like, three, 400 yards before you even hear a bugle. Um, yeah, for, for, a, for a guy... You know, that's been, you know, hunting in the east and, and you know, white tailor, you know, some, you know, the guy that just white tails and turkey hunts all his life. Um, the closest thing you could compare elk hunting to uh, is, is turkey hunting. But, you know, that, that elk, you know, he's, you know, 750 pounds, you know, or, or heavier. And, you know, he goes crashing through the woods. He's not real methodical sometimes, like a, like a turkey can be. And, um, you know, he can see well, but smell very, very well. Whereas, versus a turkey, you know, you can, you can almost talk back and forth just as long as you don't move, you know, elk, they, they've got the senses. So, uh, you know, and then 
on top of that, like you said, those, you know, they're very uh, picky about, you know, bugling because they know that, you know, bugles get them shot, you know, so it's, 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 it's crazy. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you know, I've been right up on turkeys, um, killed, killed some, you know, goblin right there in my face. But, you know, you're, we, the closest we got um, out there was 200 yards. And it was a herd of about 30 or 40 kind of in this meadow. And we were up above them. And the big bulls, um, you know, they're, they're smart. Uh, and the herd is smart. And the whole herd is smart. And they, they all work together to keep the big herd bull alive. I mean, they will literally, cows will literally congregate around him um, if they know that, you know, they're going to get shot at by, you know, a rifle or a bow or something. They will literally, you know, get in front of him and take a bullet for him um, just to keep him moving. And, and we were up above him and they're down in some thick timber. We're up in, you know, where, where we were hunting, a fire had rolled through about 20 years ago and then beetles after. So there was a lot of dead timber, dead falls, and then some standing. But you could see areas where the beetles and the fire had missed. So that's where they would go. You know, they would go hide in that big timber uh, shade and cover and, that big bull, uh, the herd bull, he was even very nice six by six. Um, we actually, uh, some, we found out through, I think social media that, um, some hunters in our, that went with our outfitter, I think, um, we were there opening week. They were the third week and they, they ended up, uh, killing him. He ended up being a super heavy six by six. Um, we saw him, but he would hide in that timber and his bugle was just so raspy and deep and so loud but we didn't even know he was there until you know like probably 20 minutes before dark um yeah probably an hour before shooting light was out but we uh you know he's just down in there and the herds just up there in that meadow moving around and uh yeah, there was there was a couple legal bulls in that group, but the big herd bull he was just down in that timber, and you could hear him in there raking trees and and uh, carrying on and stuff. But we were a little early on the rut, so we didn't get you know full blown rut action. They were kind of just checking cows and bugling here, bugling there, not constant bugles, um, and not being super aggressive with it. But um, yeah, we did get to hear those bugles, and it's crazy. It makes your heart race, uh, makes your stomach come up into your throat. Yeah, man, that that sounds. Oh my gosh, it, it, I'm I'm sitting here and like I'm like, oh, I can't wait to buy a bow because I mean I haven't owned a bow now for three years, which is weird because I don't I won't like I would rather pull out a bow and go shoot anything before I pull out a gun. I mean, minus ducks, I will shoot ducks all day long with a shotgun. Um, I have been tempted to try to shoot geese or ducks with a bow, but when I think about it, I'm like, ah, it's too much work. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's why I switched to a Finding years. arrows. Yeah. 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 Especially when you look yeah, at the price uh, of all that stuff now. Like, I haven't, like, I texted you a couple weeks ago, about a week and a half ago, about, like, questions when you're like, man, I haven't looked at this stuff in forever. And I was like, ah, great. Um, but I've got some good friends that are going to help me get, get a good setup going. Um, but, man, like, it is crazy to think about how much it has changed. Um Quickly, could you could you give a quick rundown? Because I think it's something that like I'm, I think you're gonna say some of the stuff I want I, I want to hear, and if not, I'll I'll judge you on it. What was your what was your your breakdown of your gear like from bow binoculars? Yeah, so um, 
you know, I was running. I'll start with clothes. Um, I, I've uh, since going out to Montana. You kind of start finding out, you know, when you're out when you're at Whitetail or out east. You go out west, you find out that there's this upper echelon brands of hunting gear that you never even know exists um, unless you're like intently watching, you know, Western hunting style TV shows or, or you know, meat eater or something like that. But I, you know, I run, I've run Kinetrek boots now for a couple of years. So I'm running some of the light hiker Kinetrek boots. Um, and then I was running um, my first light corrugate foundry pants. Uh, I love those. The zippers on the sides, you would be, you know, you'd get up and leave camp in the morning, it'd be 30, 40, uh, and you'd start sweating stuff, and you could unzip those things, just dump all the heat out of your pants. It was great. And then, uh, really, we wore um, T-shirts. I I had some First Light, you know, Merino wool um, T-shirts that I would wear, you know, in different camo patterns. I would wear that underneath uh, my Klamath, First Light Klamath hoodie. Um, That was kind of what i mean i couldn't have picked a more perfect uh outfit and set of clothes to wear um there's four of us hunters um let's see three of us were running first light stuff uh another one was running sitka uh everybody was happy with their clothes um you know everybody felt like they performed well uh and then for back my backpack i have a uh mystery ranch pop-up i can't remember if it's the 28 or 38 or maybe 22 or something um but it's a it's got a built-in frame on it they call it a pop-up because the frame can extend up um to give you that leverage to haul out a quarter but it'll shrink down inside itself you know if you don't need to haul any quarters out or anything so um and then the assortment of things i had in my backpack you know, water filtration, that's very important out there. It's not like uh, you're six miles into the wilderness area. You're not bringing bottled water. You're not bringing jugs of water. Um, we were running off springs. Uh, so I had a, you know, a water filter. And our outfitter and his guys, like, swore to us that we could drink the water, you know, unfiltered. They've been doing it their whole lives. Uh, one of the guys that, you know, I went with, a buddy of mine, he's an ER doctor. And he was like, look, he was like, you know, their, you know, biology or whatever you want to call it in in their, um, their gut is, you know, a lot different than what's in our gut. And you could drink that and you could get sick and everybody else could be fine. So we filtered. Um, That was a big thing that I had. You know, of course, I had a little bit of survival stuff, Um, you know, lighter um, things to start fire you know some fishing line and hooks and stuff that i can keep in there i have a little you know a little kit that i keep um you can go on you know numerous of the the big uh popular out west hunting um companies and you know i i, I took that stuff, you know um trying to think what else you know knives i was running uh the best decision I made was I bought um, some Vortex Viper HD binos, and I got the 12 by 50s. And and you hear everybody going, "Oh no, only get the eights or only get the tens." You know, if you're an out east guy going west, you're going to use tens or eights back here. You know, you're definitely be fine with them out there. But man, everybody else had tens. I you know I already had a set of tens, so I bought the 12. And I could see, you know, we would, you know, I could pick out elk out of, you know, the timber a lot, a lot quicker. I don't want to say better because better, you know, has 
to do with some skill and some experience, but, you know, I could pick them out quicker um, just because, you know, I could, you know, tell the difference between a shadow and, you know, that gold body. And then once we actually get on elk, I could be like, that's a bull, that's a bull. Um, you know, that one's got brow tones, that one doesn't. And everyone's like, oh, I can't figure out how you're seeing that. And we would switch binoculars and they'd be like, oh, this is obvious. You know, you're zoomed in, you know, two more times compared to us. Um, so I ran that. Then my uh, old trusty Hoyt bow, I've got an old Hoyt Maxis. Uh, I think I've had that thing for 12 or 13 years now, maybe even longer. Um, bought it when I was, uh, I don't even think I had a driver's license at the time. I uh, bought it when I was in high school uh, with my grass cutting money from the summer and still running that. Um, I do, uh, I do buy into the whole, I don't want to say it's new, but it's becoming more popular the heavy arrow um, mantra that's going on right now to, a, to shoot a, those heavier weight arrows. It's a throwback. It's, I think it's bringing back the old, the old, True. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, that was I was waiting on that one and then your broadhead choice. What what was your broadhead Yeah, the, choice? the broadheads. I was running the Grizzly Stick um Masai uh 200 grains. They're, you know, they're not expandable. They're fixed blade, cut on contact. Uh, you know, it's just one single blade inside of I think it's called a ferrule um that you know, it's got one screw going down through it and um, you know, they're, they're cut on contact, meaning the actual blades cutting, not some like little chiseled out tip or anything. Uh, so that's, that's what I was running my arrows and broadhead set up. Uh, I'm pushing 650, if not 700 grains. Um, I went all in with the grizzly stick brand was shooting grizzly stick arrows and they have this pretty sweet, um, insert that not only goes, you know, inside the arrow, but it's also like encapsulates the outside of arrow, the outside of the arrow on the end. So, you know, listening to Dr. Ashby on, he was on the meteor podcast of episode 200 and something it's called the archer's paradox. You know, he was over in Africa shooting big game with those, you know, he, you know, he did a whole study and everything and, and he has some very great points and, and a pretty valid opinion on it. So, uh, you know, he was on there with some grizzly stick guys and he had partnered with grizzly stick. So I went that way, um, you know, just because they, they would build my full arrow for me, broadhead and everything. They would come to my door ready to roll. I would knock tune them, uh, to make sure I had the, the spline right on the arrow and I would roll with that. So, um, that's what I shot, but I don't think you could go wrong with, uh, the other big brand that people are getting into right now. And, you know, again, talking about, you know, the upper echelon brands of hunting is the iron will broadhead. Um, that guy, that owner, he was just on the Mediator podcast, uh, talking about what he agreed with, with Dr. Ashby when he was on him and then some things he didn't agree with, you know, uh, everybody's talking about FOC or, or forward of center on your arrows that you want most of your weight up front because your arrows pull, they don't push and it's going to give you better penetration. Um, and he gets on there and his background is a mechanical, mechanical engineer. And he just kind of goes through all the formulas for kinetic energy and, and, and what he found through his studies with momentum. So I don't think you go wrong with the iron wheel broadheads either, but yes, yeah, I, I was running those grizzly sticks, you know, single bevel. Um, I did take the time 
to, to get a whetstone and sharpen them myself. Uh, I'd keep them really sharp, you know, just slice right through paper, no problem, cut hair off, no problem. So that's what I ran. Um, and I did uh, one of, like, the most controversial thing everybody talked about while we were out there was single-pin sites versus, you know, multi-pin sites. Uh, I run a, a single-pin site um, just because – Again, I've had the same bow forever, and I had multi-site on it. And through high school and even into college, I just didn't feel like I was getting a good picture of my target. Um, turns out I actually needed glasses. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that that multi-pin was messing me up. It's, it's that I needed glasses. So I switched to a single pin, and I was running a single pin. Um, I think everybody else was running multi-pins. No, one other guy. I think we were 50-50 on single pin or multi-pins. But – yeah, that was my setup. So. Well, starting with the starting with the the site real quick. The way I look at it with a single pin, which is what I think I'm going to go with, is if I set my bow at like if I set that at 35, knowing that I'm not going to shoot farther than 50, and I'm not going to shoot and shooting closer, I can at 35. If I set that, have to make a quick decision at 35. I can make a pretty good decision there about where that pin yeah. is based off an estimated. If I range a couple of things and I and I practice that at like set it at thirty five, I'm shooting this distance. Where do I need to put it? Yeah, if I'm yep. not all the way there. I mean, and that and that's the thing is making that decision that, and I think it's something that if you're especially if you're going to go out west or hunting white hills, period, you need to decide like how far you're going to shoot. I'm pretty much a forty forty five yeah. yards. I won't shoot past that. Um, yeah, and it, and it shouldn't be how big is the animal that makes my decision. That's that makes you make bad decisions. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's all about ability, man. It's all about ability and and practice and yeah. and those types of things. I mean, archery hunting it leaves errors for mistakes, anyways. And then also on top of that, you're shooting at a wild animal. Um, they can jump a string. They can you know step when you didn't think they were going to. Um, so things happen, anyways. Um, I, me personally. I shot a lot. Um, I shoot a good bit every year anyways. I think I'm on my fifth set of strings and cables on that bow just because, you know, they tell you, you know, how many shots they think they're good for. And I try to kind of keep track and, um, I can shoot out to a 60. I wouldn't have problems shooting at an elk at 60 white tail. I definitely back that down to probably 40 or 45. You know, it's a lot smaller animal. Um, but yeah, elk, I, I could shoot, I could shoot 60 very comfortably. Um, I practice out to 80 is what I practice out to, but I would never, you know, never shoot at an elk at 80 yards. No way. Um, I just practice that far because it makes 60 that much easier. So. Yeah. And yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, something that, and then going to the forward of center, uh, I might screw this up in a second if, but I don't think I'm going to screw this up. This analogy, if you think of a piston, the way it moves all the way to that piston is on the front of it to pull yeah. it through its motion. So that makes sense that in an arrow you want to pull it from the front and have that big weight. And, and yeah, I shot fixed blades for the longest time. And then I was shooting Grim Reaper. Um, that's what I'd switch to. And I have a lot of faith in Grim Reaper shooting deer. But as I was like, I'm kind of not planning on shooting a big buck or going after a big deer. 
um, with this new bow. It's pretty much, hey, I'll shoot some does, and my thing is going to be, I want, I want to go for, for an elk. So that's where, yeah. that's where I'm going to. I think I'm going to go fixed blade straight up with a two, yeah, with the, with a two blade system. I mean, it's came back and it's very reliable. It it worked yeah. back then, and we went away from it because everybody wanted light and fast. Because they wanted yeah, to get there light before the fast and with, with expandable mechanical broadhead. I mean, in the history of archery, you know, arch, you know, bows and arrows showed up in the fossil record about five thousand years ago, at least on this continent. And since then, we have been shooting you know, fixed blades. Yeah, they were stone points, but they were fixed blades all the way up until at some point in the nineties, early two thousands, we're on this you know, mechanical and expandable broadhead experiment um, for the last 20 to 30 years. And I think it's going to be a phase on the radar. Um, just for oh. what, what, what changed me? Cause I, I did, you know, I sh- I've shot two or three different kinds of expandables. What changed me is just, if somebody sits down that knows what they're talking about as far as, you know, you know, basically a mechanical engineer can explain to you physics or a physicist, they do the studies, they do the research and they're like, look, you know, as far as penetration goes, you're using up all that energy expanding that broadhead, you know, and the penetration, the penetrations, you're just not getting it. You know, it's just not going there. Um, they're too light. The blades are too thin, too weak. They break, you know, if you hit a shoulder, um, you know, they're going to bust, it's going to skip. So I think here in the last couple of years, you started to hear people chirp more and more about fixed blade, fixed blade, fixed blade. So, I, I mean, I might be wrong, but I would imagine maybe in another 50 to 60 years, you don't even hear about expandables anymore. So, yeah. And, and I'll say, hard to tell though. Hard to tell. I'll say it right here. I don't know if I've said it right before, but I've said that some companies suck. And I'll say right now, like I wear Sika, I love first light. I shot Grim Reaper. Yeah. I thought they were pretty good broadheads. Rage are the biggest pieces of shit that have ever been made, and they <laughs> still get shot, and they still sell all kinds. And it's stupid. they still kill deer, you know? They oh kill yeah, deer. they kill deer, but they also yeah. fell about sixty percent of the time. And you know, yeah. those they're losing customers every time somebody shoots one at a deer. I've seen yeah. so many times they're like, "Well, look at my blade; it didn't expand." I was like, "What do you expect? It's poorly designed." It, if you really look at how they're designed. It's literally designed where the blade can flip completely on itself and no longer have a cutting edge out. Yeah, I never or understood why that was fall open on fall open mid flight. You know, they just rattle apart. Um, and you're you know you see your arrow do crazy things or yeah, they're not even spring loaded. You know, doesn't I mean, cut. Yeah, it's just it's weird. Yeah, yeah. I think I, mean, I don't know. It's one of those things that. If somebody sat down and maybe thought it through a little bit and tried to use some a little bit of common sense, took the took the TVs and the advertisement and all that stuff out of it, what you hear from you know all the numerous pro staff members each one of those companies have, if you took all that out of it and just sit down and put them on a table and said, you know, just think about it for a second, which one of these do you think is going to be better? Um, I would, you know, I think over ninety percent of people would pick up a fixed blade over a mechanical. Yeah. yeah, the only, the only, the only fixed slash mechanical was those blood runners that would like open. Yeah, they just made. I shot some of those bigger. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I, I shot some of those shot back in the day. Uh, yeah, they, they get yep. stuck in a tree really, really well. I saw your brother yeah. smack a tree. 
<laughs> yeah, I shot some of those. Um, but man, this has been this has been a great time. Um, thanks for coming on here. Uh, thanks for talking about your association and um, and then just bullshitting about some elk hunting. Yeah, man, no problem at all. Anytime, and and uh, you know, as the association grows, um, you know, there'll be more opportunities for people to get involved. So just you know, everybody keep their eyes and ears peeled. Check us out on social media. Uh, we have a website uh org. um we're out there so if you're looking to get involved in be a part of uh you know something bigger than yourself to help out um hunters and, and the state and the deer herd look us up get a hold of us yeah man that's awesome thank you very much yes sir Thanks for listening to another episode of Fins and Feathers Podcast presented by Winter Productions and your host, Nathan Winterstock.